This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. I am so pleased to welcome back Adam Alter. Adam, welcome back to our program. Thanks for having me, Bill. You filled us with such knowledge when we first met about two years ago, and I think a lot about how much technology has changed since then, and we'll go into that, but I just want our listeners to know that you studied psychology. Uh, You teach at the Stern School of Business here in New York City. You're from Australia, which explains the accent. (laughs) You're 38 with two kids at home. We're probably just getting into this technology now. What do you believe has been the single biggest change since the last time we talked? I think the biggest change in the world of tech and in the world of screens is that the consumers of screens are much more careful now about how they consume. We're paying a lot more attention to the way we spend our time, and I think we're starting to demand more from the companies that deliver those screens. From the com- was that the Facebook hearing that kicked that off? Or? I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, is recognizing just how much of what we were putting out into the world was was either being shared or that was available for other people to consume, and how much these companies had ensnared us and, and hooked us in to spend you know every available minute on their uh, platforms. Yeah, uh, you've got a good, uh, great book out there. It's called Irresistible: The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked. Well, here's my point today. You may not be able to quit your smartphone. Agreed. Ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but a big reason why I wanted you back is to learn more about solutions and how we how we better manage our digital lives. And I just think you're perfect for that because you were the first one who explained to me how social media is bottomless. Every time you go there, there is something new. Explain that. Yeah, it's it, this idea known as a stopping queue. If you think about the way tech used to work in the 20th century in particular, Whatever you consumed, whether it was on a screen, wherever it was, there was always a natural end point. You'd read a book, you'd get to the end of the chapter. You'd watch a TV show, the episode would end, it would be a week before the next one arrived. So there were all these natural breaking points. The way things work now, everything is bottomless. When you look at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, everything just kind of flows on. There is no natural end. And as a result, we just kind of sit there, sometimes for hours. And we spend way more time than we'd like because those endpoints just don't exist anymore. Yeah, Uh, that made a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I'm just sitting on my couch vegging out, and I, I just – it's almost a trance is what I sometimes feel. Yeah, I love people it, describe it that way. If I'm doing it, I know millions of other people are doing the same thing, right? Yeah, there's a – data suggests that we spend about four hours. The average adult spends four hours on a, on smartphones a day, and for for teens and for young adults, it's up to six hours a day. Mm. What's that do to us? Well, it's not great, right? I mean, the biggest thing is we don't have that many hours when we're awake and available to do all sorts of things like exercising and spending time with loved ones, friends, all that sort of stuff. We are now spending on smartphones instead of doing that. So I I think it sort of eats into the time we have available to do other things. And and also, honestly, sitting there in a trance for four hours a day, Hmm. probably not great for you. Did you see the 60 Minutes piece back in December? Of 2018. I did, yeah. Um, it was all about screen time, just so our listeners know here, and the effect on people, especially, especially children. Right. What do you think you learned from that story? Well, the biggest thing for me with kids and screens is that kids need time to sort of try things out. They need to sit in front of someone. You know, another kid takes your toy. 
you get bopped on the head for that. You know, you've got to work out the way social interaction works. And there's a lot of trial and error, but it requires really rapid feedback. So when kids are spending time in front of each other, they learn things really fast. When they spend time behind a screen, that process of learning that we've had as humans for, you know, thousands of years just doesn't happen. So you're going to get 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, and then essentially 20-year-olds, people in the workplace, people with their own kids who were never socialized in quite the same way that the rest of us were and have been for thousands of years. That, to me, is a huge concern. Yeah, a concern. So our brains are being rewired to a degree. Yeah, in essence, I think so. Hmm. Here's what I learned from that piece, and I've been telling a lot of people this. Don't update your app. Yeah. I think if you have automatic updates on your app, the app's always changing because what the story taught us on 60 Minutes is that the programmers on the other side are waiting to see what Adam and what Bill does so they can figure out where our interest or where our eye or where our finger goes to reprogram the app to make it more effective. Yeah, that's right. So every update, you imagine that you're updating it to make it a better app for you, but what you're doing is updating it to make it a better app for the company. And as they learn with each you know, passing day, the next update of the app is better designed to, to right. ensnare you. So they're watching the way your hand moves. Exactly. Uh, take Instagram. Uh, they just went to this new video bug at the top of the screen mm-hmm. for big events of the day. Like if the president has, a, has an interview, th- they'll give you a link to watch the video, which was never there before. That's right. Personally, I don't need it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have 10 other sources where I get that information. Uh, Google Maps, w- which I love, they're giving me stuff now that I don't need. Yeah, that's what happens over time. You get convergence. So what used to be a map program now has videos and links to other things that you, you don't need. But when you're there, you're captive. And so they'll give you all of that stuff along the way. Which keeps us on for a longer period of time than the four hours you talked about. Yeah. One of your biggest pieces of advice, again, what we're looking for solutions today, mm-hmm. is to turn off notifications. I think people kind of get that now. I think so. Do you? Yeah, it's been an important two years. I think that's that message has traveled far and wide you know, people don't like the idea that they're giving up their power to someone else, but basically can tap them on the shoulder at any time and say, hey, pay attention to me. You right. know, we want to be able to exert control over the phone. So if somebody comments or likes something on Instagram or on, on your Facebook page, I, I, do you need to know about it? I don't think so. And if they like enough things, you're going to be told every 30 seconds for the entire day. Know, which is going to just make you crazy. Totally. Um, I saw one of your TED Talks online. Fascinating. Thank you. Screens that make us happy. You listed exercise, relaxation, weather, education, and health. Yes. Seems obvious, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Screens that make us less happy. Dating, social media, news, gaming, and web browsing. Right. What do they have in common? Well, the one thing they have in common is we spend a huge amount of time on those things. Those are the things that really suck us in. So the things that you described that make us happy, we tend to spend about a third as long on those as we do on the things that make us unhappy. So we're really skewing our time in favor of the things that that grab our attention, that don't let go of it, and that keep us there for three times longer. Mm. The screens that make us happy, we spend nine minutes a day. Yeah. The screens that make us less happy, we spend 27 minutes a day. Big difference. Three times. Yeah. What's the psychology behind that? A lot of the things that make us unhappy have a very strong social component where you feel obligated either to like other people's posts or you post things and then you want them to like what you're doing. Or they have that bottomless aspect, right? So you go on, you, you plan to spend maybe five minutes and then an hour's passed. And because it's bottomless, you've never had that cue to say, move on to the next thing. So there are a number of different hooks that are baked into those screens that we spend more time on. And that ends up leading us to spend way more time. And it turns out it makes us unhappy. It's, it's making them more money. 
Absolutely. It makes yeah. the rap more popular. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. You mentioned a moment ago a stopping cue. Yeah. What's a stopping cue? Stopping cue is a sort of gentle suggestion from the screen that you might want to do something else. So it's sometimes something that a company will tell you. You know, there are some companies that will say, you've been on here for a while, you should move on. There are? There are a couple of them, yeah. Who's, who's doing that? It's interesting. Now, Netflix even has built in this feature where if you sit there and you don't push a button for long enough and enough episodes go by, the screen will say, are you sure you're still watching? Would you like to continue? So that's a gentle stopping cue, which is a new introduction from Netflix. But, you know, most of these programs do everything they can to avoid these stopping cues because they know that the minute they say something like, would you like to continue, push this button here to continue to see more information and so on, Mm -hmm. that's the time when you're going to move on. Does the consumer appreciate a stopping cue? Do we know that? We have, I think, very little idea. Mm. Yeah. I I mentioned when I'm vegging out, I catch myself on the couch and I'm like, put this thing down. Yeah. Uh, A couple more solutions. Uh, You said a Dutch design firm turns the office into a yoga studio at 6 o'clock at night. That <laughs> yeah. would be a stopping cue. It's a great stopping cue, yeah. This is the Dutch firm in, uh, in Amsterdam, what they do is they have all the desks rigged to the ceiling. So at 6 o'clock every day, it doesn't matter what you're doing, you could be on the phone to your most important client. At 6 o'clock, the desks start whirring and they go right up, rise to the ceiling. So the room just becomes empty and they have yoga, a yoga session every day at 6 p.m. So obviously that's a very heavy-handed stopping cue that prevents you from using the screen past Boy, six. That must be healthy, huh? It's probably very right. good for them, yeah. Uh, you also said Daimler deletes emails. Uh, is that Daimler? Yeah, the car company. Uh-huh. Yeah. I love, uh, I love how, that idea. How's that work? Yeah, what they do, it's a sort of an approach to, to emails when people are on vacation. So, you know, one way we, we tend to do emails when we're on vacation is someone emails you, they get an auto reply that says, I'm away. But really, if you're on vacation, most of us just keep checking our emails and we keep responding. What happens at Daimler is if I'm on vacation and someone emails me, Daimler sends an automatic reply that says, this person's on vacation. They're not available for the next however many weeks. We have deleted your email. They will never see it. You can email them back when they're back from vacation, or you can have this email sent on to someone who's still available to help you. What that means is if you're on vacation and it's your email account, the way that inbox looks the day you leave is exactly the way it looks when you get back. So it liberates you while you're away. You never have to check your email. So what they're saying is that you can get fr- you, you can get freedom from this. It's one of the only ways, yeah. I wonder how people, I wonder if they feel comfortable with that. You know, most of the people I've interviewed say it's the first time they feel like they could truly cut the rope there and let themselves go away from email at least for just a few weeks, and, and it's very good for their well-being. There are certainly some people who are going to find that anxiety-provoking because email is so important to us. But those people, I think, usually have a personal account that's separate, and they'll keep mm-hmm. checking those emails. You said also that you have followed people to help them disconnect. Yeah. How many people have you followed? Uh, a few dozen, I'd say. Over uh-huh. time, yeah, just uh, people have come to me, especially people who have emailed and, and said something like, you know, my my son, my daughter has a real problem with this or we have a problem as a family. Can you make some suggestions? And I'll check in with them from time to time. Yeah. What did you learn? Uh, I learned that it's, A, very, very difficult for people to stay away from screens. They're such a huge part of every aspect of our lives now. Uh, but with the right kinds of techniques, the right habits that are built in, a lot of these families manage. Hmm. I wonder what habits you notice too, because you're you're watching, you're observing them, correct? Yeah, absolutely. What do they do? Do they do anything differently than than we do? The biggest difference between a family that manages screen time and one that doesn't is mindfulness and an understanding of what they're doing, a sort of audit of what what they're doing with screens. So the, the families that really struggle have absolutely no boundaries. Every minute is a minute to be on the screen. It could be three a.m. and someone will roll over in bed and check the screen. It'll be. 
dinner time and two of the kids will be on the screen. You know, th- those kinds of absences of boundaries are critical because it means you are always beholden to a screen instead of having deep social interactions or being able to work without paying attention to notifications on your phone. So the first thing you do is you say, let's build in some sort of sacred space in your day that is screen and tech free. Hmm. I'm going to write a book called Time with People because <laughs> we're losing time with people. Yeah. Uh, the iPhone is 12 years old. Facebook is 15 years old. Staggering. It's so new. Yeah, it's staggeringly new. I agree. Uh, I don't think all the technology is bad. I mean, you can keep in touch with family and friends back in Australia, as you mentioned a couple years ago, uh, with family back there. Uh, Another solution, and I don't know if you did it today, but I remember you did it a few years ago. You put your phone on airplane mode, and you said that's because I turned a smartphone into a dumb phone. Why do you do that? Yeah, it is currently on airplane mode. I spend most of the day with my phone in airplane mode because I want the phone for certain things and not for others. I don't want the phone to be able to communicate with me, but I want to go to the phone when I need something. Turning it onto airplane mode allows me to do that. So one of the things, I have a one-year-old and a two-year-old, and when I'm with them, I want to be able to take photos. I want to film them doing you know, all the things they do during the day. So I use my phone as a camera which I can do when it's in airplane mode, but I'm not going to get emails. I'm not going to be away from them mentally because I'm constantly checking the phone because I know it's essentially a dumb phone. It's not going to give me any new information. You know what I notice here? Like in our business, there's a certain amount of time where you just, you have to concentrate. Yeah. You have to focus. You have to read the details. Otherwise, you're not going to consume the story and understand it in the way where the viewers can get benefit from it. But if the interruptions keep coming, be it an email or a phone call or a knock on the door... Your brain gets thrown off and you have to gather yourself and come back to that moment on your page. Yeah. Once you're away from that moment, it's hard to get back there. It takes time. It takes energy. And if you keep doing that throughout the day, you're essentially never in that sort of deepest mode of working or of thinking things through. And it keeps you shallow the whole time. Shallow. engaged. (laughs) Yeah. And slows you down. I've got a solution. I came up with this years ago. It's called a BlackBerry timeout. (laughs) Back when we used to use Blackberries. Right. you go to dinner and somebody's on their phone or they feel compelled to check an email or a text message, take a BlackBerry timeout. It's a little old school. <laughs> Everyone can go to their phone for up to five minutes, take care of, manage all your affairs, and then come back into the conversation. I love it because it's a boundary. It's, it's setting the boundary and saying, we, we're not going to you know, abstain from screens here. We're not going to go into a cave and become hermits. But this is screen time and this is not screen time. Yeah. And in not screen time, we're going to have deeper engagement. such a rude thing, isn't it, when you're sitting there and somebody's checking their phone? It's pretty rude. I mean, what's worse, <laughs> that or the watch, checking what time it is. Uh, I pulled this for you, uh, New York Times, January 2019. This is your brain off Facebook. Uh, they did a study. Did you hear about this? I have heard. Uh, a study, the average user would have would be paid one to $2,000 to be pried away for a year. So if you quit, what happens? More in-person time with friends and family, Mm -hmm. less political knowledge, but less partisan fever. I'm reading for the Times now. Right. A small bump in one's uh, daily moods and life satisfaction. And for the average Facebook user, an extra hour a day of downtime. That's critical, right? That last piece. I think there's a lot of information there. But that last piece, having more downtime, that's time that you can spend doing other things. It's Imagine, you know, your budget, you've suddenly had a raise in income of a pretty significant amount, that gives you a lot of slack to do with what you want. And I think that's huge to say, 
here, have an extra hour in the day. Imagine what you do with that. That's yeah. seven hours a week, 30 hours a, uh, Ex- a month. Exercise. Yeah, absolutely. Go outside. <laughs> live, a, live a healthy life. All those things humans used to do. Uh, there was some news uh, recently out of the UK about a report on Facebook uh, labeling it to, uh, the digital gangster. Mm-hmm. Did you see that? I did. Uh, and it, it basically said that uh, Facebook maximizes revenue at every cost even when the cost is user privacy and trust. And we began our conversation by talking about the Facebook hearings that we saw, what was it, a year ago now? Uh, What would you say about the continuing education of the consumer based on reports like this? I think it's worth understanding what you're giving up with each of those minutes that you spend on on the screen when you're on a platform like Facebook. Like, you know, as I post something, obviously I'm, I'm, potentially getting positive feedback, sharing information with friends, but what am I giving up? And so this, this, this kind of education, I think, teaches us what Facebook's doing with our data, what they're learning about us, and how they then turn that back on us, how they essentially weaponize it, how they evolve the platform over time to capitalize on those, those spare minutes that we have and to, to basically suck them up. So, so what, the, what the study out of London is saying is that Facebook is just in it for profit at every turn. Yeah. Do you believe that? Sure, absolutely. I think... Pretty much every every large company will will put profit first, which makes sense. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. But I think we have to be wise as consumers to recognize when that company's profit making is bad for us and then do things a bit differently. So what's the consumer doing? And I, I, I reflect on this because we discussed this about the last time we talked here, yeah. about consumers putting more influence over these companies. And you referred to that. There's a few senators who are pushing for this too, uh, Blumenthal, Markey, and, and Josh Harley out of Missouri. They sent letters to Facebook, Apple, and Google uh, asking whether or not they would support federal legislation to protect children and teens' privacy online. I would guess if the pressure is coming from some corners that there will be an expectation of change. Yeah, I think so. I think this is a bipartisan issue. I mean, I think both sides of the aisle care about it. We all care about the well-being of our kids. We care about our own well-being. And so there's a there's a fair amount of pressure that's mounting over time for companies like Facebook to pay more attention to our well-being or at least for us to learn what they're doing and then to use that information to ensure that that no changes are being made that will essentially harm our kids in particular. I think that education continues now. And again, it's hard for us sometimes to remember just a few years ago, but it's moving at a really fast clip. You know Cal Newport? I do. Okay. You're friends with him, right? Yes. So he, he's, a, he's a doctor from... He's a Georgetown. Georgetown. Yeah. And he says he's never had a social media account. It's true. Is it? Yeah, I believe so. How's he different from everyone else then? I, I think he he walks the walk. I mean, he's written a lot about his first book. Well, I'm not sure it's his first, but he had a book called Deep Work a few years ago, a huge bestseller, phenomenal book about how you actually get deeply into the work you're doing. How do you get engaged? How do you find meaning in that work? And one of his rules is essentially turn everything else off. You don't need social media nearby. You don't need other accounts nearby. As few screens as possible. It's really got to be just about what you're doing in that moment. And you'll, you'll get much more out of your, your time. Yeah. You know, uh, the, the psychology behind this is really interesting. It is, yeah. And those companies understand it. Yeah. And they keep people like us hooked. They do. Which is the reason you wrote the book Irresistible. Um, since the last time we talked, a, a couple of observations here. The smartphone introduced facial recognition. Mm-hmm. Why would they do that? What's the benefit either to them or to us in facial recognition? 
Well, I think the benefit to us is supposedly, as with all these things, convenience, right? It's now you don't even have to push the button on the phone. Now you just look at the phone and it knows who you are. The potential benefits to them, I think if you are – if you're concerned about these sorts of things for surveillance purposes, if you're looking at the phone and that image is being potentially captured and used in some way, they now have you know your phone as you look at the screen captured, your your face captured on the screen. They have images of all the people who are using facial recognition. So you're basically giving away the privacy that may have come from being able to look at your phone and not have mm-hmm. anyone know you were doing that. So here's a query. So I come to work in the dark, right? Because we do a morning show here. Right. And I'm in... I'm in a car and I'm coming up 6th Avenue and I, I use the Starbucks app mm-hmm. so I can walk in and grab it and go and you don't have to stand in line. It works really well, actually. Yeah. But I always notice when I hit confirm for the order, you know, the screen's <clears throat> it's, it's not real bright because it's, it's dark, but then I'll get a little flash of brightness huh. and I wonder why. That's interesting. I, it, uh, are, yeah. Is the light not strong enough to capture my facial image on the app and they want to cast a little more a little more toward my face and I, grab it? It's interesting. I have no idea that it's possible and I, I you know a lot of these apps require your face an image of your face just to confirm a purchase for example and to the extent that's true if it's dark there may be a raising of the the light level to do that. So look into that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With your grande whole milk latte. Uh, another thing that's happened since we last talked, Facebook had these hearings that we mentioned a moment ago that really ripped the cover off of their data use. Is that situation ever solved or does Facebook just make the billions of dollars in profit that they always have? Well, there are two ways these problems are solved or at least they change for the better. I think the one way is bottom-up you know, grassroots consumer-driven change that comes from consumers demanding something different from a big company. A lot of times big companies don't respond, but sometimes with enough pressure they might, especially as the publicity rises. And then the other is top-down, the government legislation, things like that, a government that says to a company like Facebook, what you're doing here on several fronts is not okay and here are some ways you need to change based on research, based on what we understand of your practices. You know Scott Galloway? I do know him well. Oh, you guys all run in the same circle, we don't do. you? Uh, he did an interview with us. Uh, he did a Hammer Time podcast about a year ago when he came out with the book. Yeah. Um, the Four. The Four. It's an excellent book, too. It is. So he introduced us a lot to, to all that psychology as well. But he believed that there would be a breakup of these massive technology companies by now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has not happened. Well, I love Scott because I think he uh, he makes very bold predictions and a lot of them are right, correct. He's often the first person to make some really major predictions. And then some I think are going to take a little bit longer to happen, but he's always guessing in the right direction. I think he's, yeah. he's good at that. Uh, two more points here. It, it's apparent that our adversaries are trying to work our system, be it Russia or China or North Korea or others. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think about where that debate is headed? Well, I don't know whether to, about where the debate is headed. I just think, you know, there are too many vulnerabilities in, in social media, in the programs we use that I think, as you said, the, these companies are only 15 years old. Some of them are younger. And so they just haven't had enough time to iron out all the wrinkles. And I think a big part of this will come from, you know, revealing what kind of hacking potential there is for these sorts of platforms. We're learning more and more about where the weaknesses are. And I think companies like Facebook are being forced to respond now. Yeah, they're young. But I think there, there probably is something to answer to in all of this. Yeah, I totally agree. So let's see what they say. Last question. W- what do you think is next in our digital learning curve? That's an interesting question. I think, um, you know, 
we've learned a lot about what these companies do. When I first started speaking about this, people would ask, you know, what goes on behind the curtain at these companies, you know, the very highest levels? And the answer I had to give was, I have no idea. We don't really know what's going on. But what happened, especially at the end of 2017, was some of the execs, the early execs, the early investors in these companies came out and said, turns out what we did was really not care much about you as a consumer. All we wanted to do was capture every spare minute of your time, and here are some of the things we did. And then that opened the floodgates. More and more people from these companies are coming out and saying, actually, I feel bad, and here's why, and this is what we were doing. And as a result, consumers are learning with these sort of dumps of information a whole lot about what's going on behind the the doors Mm -hmm. of these companies. And I think that's making us smarter. It's teaching us what we need to demand. And over time, I think consumers generally are becoming much wiser about the way they consume. It's great to talk with you and catch up with you. It sounds like that last answer is another book. Uh, Possibly. We'll have to see. Uh, What are you working on? (laughs) Yeah, I'm starting to think about book number three. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, it may well draw on some of these ideas. Good luck to you, Adam. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate it. Adam Alter wrote the book Irresistible. Check it out when you can. There's so much knowledge in there. Adam Alter, thank you. Thanks, Bill. You've been listening to Hammer Time. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And for more podcasts, go to foxnewspodcast.com and rate and review this one. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch.